Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I'm Dr. Ali Merchant. And I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And welcome to Couched. Today, Romy and I are excited to mix things up a bit this episode and are bringing to you all, not two, but three guests. We are thrilled to welcome twin choreographers Hilary Brown Estreffi and Brianna Brown Tipley, who founded Same as Sister, a New York City and Toronto-based performance collective celebrating 10 years of collaborative and interdisciplinary storytelling. Their commissions have been presented in Canada, the United States, Greece, and France, and they are recipients of numerous artists' grants, including the New York State Council on the Arts, New York Foundation for the Arts Grants. Same as Sister is also a commissioned resident of the HERE Artist Residency Program, HARP, in New York City, and Dance Makers Guest Curator Programming. Thank you, Allie. We are also delighted to be joined by esteemed psychoanalyst Shonda D. Griffin, LCSW, who is a teaching, training, and supervising analyst at the Manhattan Institute for Psychoanalysis, known as MIP, and co-chair of the Committee on Race and Ethnicity at MIP. Additionally, she is a faculty member of the National Institute for the Psychotherapies, the Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis, and an adjunct professor at the Silberman Graduate School of Social Work at Hunter College. She is the co-author of The Secret Society, Perspectives from a Multiracial Cohort with Rosanna Eshegoyen and Julie Hyman. And she's authored many papers and presentations, most recently publishing Who's on My Couch? BIPOC Subjectivity and the Climate Crisis. Shonda is a member of Black Psychoanalysts Speak and is in private practice in New York City. Please go to our website, couchpodcast.org, to read about our guests' many accomplishments and to find links to their work. Thank you all for participating in our podcast today. My experience in watching Same as Sister perform back in 2018 was incredibly moving and haunting, and it has really stayed with me all these years. While reading Shonda's work on the climate crisis and Blackness, I found myself considering the many points of intersection and overlap in both of your work. And my mind just started ping-ponging with associations. So before I launch into those, I'm hoping we can start by sharing with our audience some initial thoughts as to how these seemingly disparate disciplines interrelate in your minds. Perhaps, Shonda, you could start us off. Thank you, Ellie. So I... The way they intersect for me are in broad strokes, which is that we're all women of color and we're all storytellers. And we are centering voices of color, decentering white master narratives and contextualizing people of color's experience within the history of colonialism, the history of imperialism and slavery. So broad stroke there. And I think more specifically, and maybe this had something to do, Allie, with what you saw as the intersections, is an emphasis on aesthetics, how important aesthetics are, both to witness new imaginaries and to spark new imaginaries, but more specifically as producers of knowledge. And I'm finding that to be a very important place to integrate within my work as a psychoanalyst at this point. Thank you. 
Hillary and Brianna, would you like to riff off that? Specifically in talking about the piece that you saw, Ali, it was the exciting event. It was actually one of the first pieces that we had wholeheartedly decided to focus on race. It was a subject that obviously is ever present through our work, but specifically with that piece, we decided to hone in on it. And within our narrative, Hill and I often look at terror and horror. So I feel the intersections there in terms of climate crisis too is this notion of horror being reality, slavery being horror. And the way that we were examining it, the way we were looking at the narrative, the climatic arches was this real life horror. So I see a lot of crossovers there. Yeah, I think with that work, there were a lot of different things that we are bringing focus to. It was part of the 2018 Dance Space Project platform, which was curated by Judy Hussey-Taylor and Reggie Wilson, who is the director and choreographer of Fist and Heel Performance Group. So there were a lot of intersections for us also in genres of dance, in terms of dance forms and aesthetics, just relating to what Shonda said about aesthetics. That's something that really holds a lot of importance and weight in our work. And we were looking at the absence or lack of Black presence in postmodern dance. That was something that Reggie was also pointedly looking at in the research leading up to this platform and who he invited in to respond to different questions around that. And so for us, it was interesting. We actually come from a contemporary and postmodern formation or background. We're originally from Canada, so that's where we trained before coming to New York. And so we were interested in what is Same as Sisters' vision or twist on that, and how do we place Blackness in that context? So that was how we were approaching it from a very choreographic lens. And then we were interested in bringing in our own research into slave narratives and historical contexts as Afro-Canadians, and we were working with collaborators from very different cultural histories as well. We work with a dance hall performer named Ramis Rafishal, who is originally from Kingston, Jamaica. So his history and his knowledge of the African or Black experience is very different from ours. And then the other collaborator we were working with was Christina Hay, who comes originally from Oslo, Norway. So it was an amalgamation of our different viewpoints on race relations and the construct of race. You can't have blackness without this construct of whiteness. So that we were really pressing up against those juxtapositions conceptually and visually. I think one of the things that stood out to me when I was watching both the exciting event as well as the recent videos that you sent us was that Something that I had forgotten at the time and was reminded of was the use of humor in your work. I found myself bursting out laughing multiple times and then reading, Shonda, your deep theoretical work. Suddenly there's Kanye West <laughs> being quoted and like Kendrick Lamar. And I'm like, OK, there's something about taking up space that's happening. There's something about Blackness as it takes up these various spaces. And there's the horror that you speak of, Hillary and Brieb. There's also an incredible curiosity of using humor that I found really, it's not right to say it was uplifting necessarily because it wasn't uplifting, but it was very thought-provoking for me to sit with humor in a very beautiful way. I appreciate you saying that, Ali, because I just gave the presentation 
a few days ago. And while I am talking about the horror and the terror for many people of color in their relationship to the natural environment, that a tree is not neutral. A tree is beauty and the tree is terror and violence as well. I'm also thinking about these different times that I would have this huge smile on my face or laughing at some of the absurdity that I was reading about in respect to anti-Blackness and how it just is often disregarded in psychoanalytic articles. It's anti-Black logics that undergird many of our theories and theories around climate change are just ignored. And yeah, sometimes I find it so absurd, I'm laughing about it. Shonda, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more, and this links up with this idea of terror. And Brianna, you said the horror being true life reality and also of an imaginary too, I think is maybe what you were implying. Thank you. So the short piece that you received first and then the extended piece is largely based on me being asked to weigh in on BIPOC subjectivity in the climate crisis. And I didn't know what to say because I didn't have the experience that my patients were talking about the climate crisis or the environment in the same way that my white colleagues' patients were. They were alarmed. They had echo anxiety. That's the term now. I started to wonder, was I not listening for? Did I not know because of my own relationship with the environment? And actually, I have one patient who I just knew was very much in connection with the natural environment. He hikes, he farms, he finds every opportunity to be in nature. He took his family on a hike in Peru. He was the only one who liked it for his birthday. I finally did ask him, was he afraid? Did he have concerns about climate change? And he said, yeah. It just was not talked about. And in the course of that exploration, he did talk about his aspirations to live in a rural area, to farm, teach other people how to work with agriculture. But he was too afraid to. He was too afraid to be in a rural area as a Black man, isolated, potentially alone. And what I gathered from working with him and even thinking about my own experience and how I would not want to be in the woods alone ever is how much this is contextualized by a history of violence around the natural environment where violence took place. Now, it's not the only part of our history as people of color. There's a lot of beauty in relationship with the natural environment, but this stays within the collective unconscious and the collective community for generations. And then the other part, can I go to these eco-psychoanalytic articles to get some understanding of what might be happening with my patient regarding his body and the natural environment or his concern for climate? And they didn't respond to my patient in any way or me or any of the people of color that I work with. Everyone is subsumed under this universal man, which actually is a function of anti-Blackness. I think you're elaborating on another tier of horror, if you will. That's my concern. Mm -hmm. Pathologizing, criminalizing people of color because our relationship with the natural environment doesn't look like this white ideal relationship with the natural environment. I think it's interesting that we were just talking about humor and then we're with horror. I see them pivoting around each other. Hillary, you're nodding. I'm wondering if you had a thought there. Yeah, Brie referenced our debut work as a collective woman times three. 
And our preoccupation with that work was really seeing if we could invent a performative experience of horror and terror through dance. And often we use reenactment as a tool. So we were doing a lot of research into cinematic examples of this and bringing it more into a political context. And that was something that we were finding. It's a very fine line between where something can be read as horrific and impactful. And then when it starts to maybe take a turn and there is this sense of humor or comedy in it. And I feel that's a line that we are constantly juggling in our work as well. Could you say a little bit for our listeners who haven't been able to see the piece? So we developed that work over a multi-year period, I'd say about four to five years. There were different iterations, but ultimately it ended up being a triptych. So it was divided into three sections. The first section being a filmed reenactment of scenes from horror films that we were looking at or borrowing from. And in that case, we really stripped away any of the guts and gore and over-the-top antics of horror. And so that actually made it quietly horrific, that depiction of like a predator and prey scenario. And then the second scene was a duet between myself and Brianna. And we called on mythology of sirens or mermaids in some cultural contexts. And so women as being the predator, as opposed to the first scene where we depicted a male character as the predator. And there was a reclamation. And then the final scene was a combination of video projections and choreographed movement. And we were sourcing the year 1963 and different political protests, of course, civil rights activities that happened mixed in with popular culture. And so it ended up being a replica of a Motown duet, but with echoes of different things that were happening in the background. And so they all seem like very disparate things, but we were calling in this aspect of horror, terror, in terms of the concept and the aesthetics. And really, it very much was about this relationship of power, who has the power, who's relinquishing the power. In our new piece that Hillary and I are currently researching, we're dealing with mental illness and Blackness and what that means as someone that has a lived mental illness experience as being hospitalized. A lot of times there's assumptions of Blackness and the Black experience. And I feel like that's the rub of our work a lot of times as we're trying to break these assumptions. Oftentimes in the downtown dancing, it's an assumption that a Black performer will have a very diasporic, an African diasporic language. Why are you guys presenting a fairy tale narrative? Why are you presenting something that's heavily themed in horror? There is an expectation of what one is going to see on the stage. And I think that's something that Hill and I really try to push against. And a lot of times we try to reclaim things that we feel our white counterparts have taken. Like, for instance, in the exciting event, we were seeing a common theme over the past few years of white performers being ironic by using rap music with a postmodern language. So Hiller and I wanted to deconstruct that and take that back. So then our final scene in the exciting event, we danced to Buster Rhymes. And it just brings like a plethora of underlying meanings to the work. And that's also, I think, a lot of where like the humor comes from, or it's this like sly little humor that we have like 
under the surface where maybe potentially like we feel like as the Black performers on stage, like we know the joke, but the audience may not know the joke. And it continues in all of our work. And the assumption of what it's like to be Black with a mental illness is what's surfacing now in our work. So I just feel that kind of lends itself to what Chandra was talking about. And it's a place where I felt I had very little help and very little understanding of what it's like to be a Black woman dealing with a mental illness institutionalized in a space that didn't understand me culturally. So I feel that's something that's also coming really hard in our work right now. And the horror and terror, what that presents itself through that scenario. I had been hospitalized in a predominantly white psychiatric ward. And there were just these huge assumptions about me being a Black woman. There were huge assumptions about my profession. There are huge assumptions about my behavior. And so I think that's just something that's also resonating in our new work that Hillary's examining. Thank you. Shonda. Yeah. You see me nodding <laughs> like I'm a bobblehead, right? <laughs> I read a short interview, Brianna, and it stuck with me for the reasons that I am using my voice as a platform to speak to these very issues of what it means to be in a Black and a Blackened body. Because remember, anti-Blackness, just like whiteness, these are constructs. This is not just about Black or white people, so I want to make that clear. But what it means to be in a Black or a Blackened body within the mental health world, psychoanalysis specifically for me, but in reading the short interview where you spoke to your experience, the mental health field at large and we're in a bit of a setup as clinicians, as you are, as patients are, in that we are given a white idea of health to use as assessment. And people of color's experiences are completely decontextualized. But that's kind of the function of anti-Blackness. That's the social function of it, largely, which is to have anti-Blackness constitute a white ideal. So it's a trap for us as assessors and for patients that we see in some way, unless we are being intentional, again, about seeing people within their social historical context and seeing the complexities in our lives as people who have been historically subjugated and oppressed and blackened. It's reminding me of you talk about artistic knowing, but where does knowledge come from and how do we create it? And you talk about artistic knowing as a different kind of creation of knowledge. And if you could first, Shonda, maybe say what that is since you wrote about it. And I think it very much intersects with what Brianna and Hillary are producing and creating. As I mentioned up front, as I delve further into my work around race as it applies to psychoanalysis and patients of color, I am finding myself looking at other epistemies, be it history, philosophy, dance, literature, and visual art as well. And so in this discussion that's not just being had by analysts around climate and environments, it's being had by eco-critics and post-humanists. If we're going to really try to reimagine what it means to be human, if we're going to scrap it because it just sort of 
reifies hierarchy and racism and all the ism, sexism, all of those things with this anti-Black logic, then we need to look to other epistemies, art specifically, aesthetic specifically, because it has no bounds. It taps into the unconscious. It taps into several imaginaries. It's not just about what we know anymore. It's about what we don't know and what we want it to be. And so I find myself not just a passive observer anymore of art or anything that I read. I'm trying to take from it and learn something from it. And so in my paper, I talk about Miyazaki Hayu's anime, and I talk about Mongechi Mutu's several forms of art, her sculpture, her collage. Her work of art is commentary on the natural environment, on our relationships with animals and plants. And most of them are hybrids or mergers or aliens. There's Afrofuturism in it. And so I just derive so much beauty from them and also pain and interest. And it sparks my imagination. Historically, psychoanalysis has always done this. We've always referred to literature. One of the most important concepts in Freud's theory is based on a Greek myth, the Oedipus complex. So (laughs) we do this historically, and I think we need to do it more, and I plan on doing it more. I look forward to integrating Same as Sister in my journey, too, now that I know more about you. Thank you, Shanda. That's awesome to hear. I'm curious what you think about this idea, Hillary and Brianna, either of you, of being creators of knowledge. I think there's certainly an immediacy that performance and specifically dance brings different calls to action. It's ephemeral, but it's also an immediate form. So if you have an audience, a witness present, there's hopefully a very strong connection between what's happening on stage, to use a traditional term, and what they're taking in and processing. I think for us, the framework for our performance works is that we do want the audience to be a very active participant. And as much as we're sharing our point of view or our knowledge where we're coming from, we're heavily influenced from their perceptions and their feedback post-performance. So that relationship is really important. We're not trying to like hit the audience over the head. We want them to actively be figuring things out for themselves. So we use a lot of open-ended sort of structures or narratives, even images. Things have already happened and we're showing you the aftermath. It's not always beginning, middle, end. And so it allows for us to give these nuggets of knowledge, but also have the audience be able to fill them in and take it with them beyond the context of just this one staging or performance that they've witnessed live. Something that we're exploring right now in this new piece that Brie mentioned, it's titled Upstairs in Our Bedroom, which is exploring our twinship and Brie's mental health struggles in a parallel or breaking from the hospitalization of the silent twins. So June and Jennifer Gibbons, who were Afro-Caribbean twin sisters, outsider authors who were hospitalized in the infamous Broadmoor Hospital in the UK. and so. We're really trying to impart our experiences and our knowledge and that of another set of women of color who had this lived experience of mental illness or madness. We're trying to just really reimagine these narratives so that the audience can 
enter into something in a way that they haven't entered into it before. And I think, again, we use Brie was saying we rub up against a lot of things. There's a lot of juxtaposition. I'd even say a lot of discomfort. That's something that's been described about our work. A lot of times we've had audience members come up to us and that was very disquieting or that made me feel very uncomfortable. And of course, I feel we're very generous and receptive and compassionate towards our audience. But sometimes, yes, that is the intent is for you to feel uncomfortable because that is the point that we're trying to get across. Not everyone's experience is always a quieted, comfortable, easy to process kind of scenario. And so I think with the narrative arches around disability, there's always this sort of heroic or sort of adversity journey. Like I had this issue, I suffered from mental illness or madness, and I received this aid, and now I'm better. And how amazing is that story? And through our research and also our conversations with a research team that we're working with in Toronto, Three Dance, which is Laura Appel and Rachel De Silvera Gorman, we've been looking at how for a lot of people of color, their lived experience of madness and mental health, mental illness has not been an adversity journey. It's actually been the opposite. It's been more traumatizing. So we're trying to pull from all these different sources of knowledge to really, I like this word a lot, and Shanda used it also, reimagine and recenter narratives that are oftentimes brushed to the side. I just going to say, I really appreciate you speaking to making people uncomfortable. That was disquieting. <laughs> it's like, good. <laughs> it should be. <laughs> so then you got it. <laughs> exactly. It's really also, Chanda, you were talking about how it does something to the unconscious to be in contact with art like that. And certainly I felt that watching the two of you. And one of the things that I kept coming back to was there are times when one can look at something that is overtly political and it's as if something has been hit over the head like with a sledgehammer. And the two of you seem to do something very different where you're talking about race, you don't step away from it, you don't look away from, again, horror, but it doesn't feel like I'm being preached to much rather than that. And there is, like you said, Hillary, a space that's being created for me to enter into with my own unconscious. And I think that's the aesthetic that I was thinking about when I was also reading your work, Shonda, that there is a lot of room for my own imagination to take up, go places. One idea that I remember Ali and I, we were chatting beforehand. Remember this, Ali, about motion? and action, and forced motion and action. We were thinking specifically the most salient example is chattel slavery and extraction of labor through forced motion, forced action. And then what we see when the two of you dance, which is agentic, and I don't want to add any other adjectives because it's your experience as you're dancing, but curious where all three of your minds go with regard to motion in this way. Well, I'll speak to... One part of my paper that I'm looking at, and I'm still processing it, it's definitely pulling from Zakia Iman Jackson's book, Becoming Human, and her concept of ontological plasticity as Blackness, basically. We're sub-superhuman. We're all the things. And one of the things that I say is, while this is a social function to perpetuate white supremacy, this plasticity that's given to our bodies, 
I also want to think about it in, I don't know, in a more positive way, like what it means to be mutable, movable, fluid, like all the things and nothing at the same time. So that's what I associated to when you talked about movement and agency, just this idea that we can change form, be a lot of things at once. I love that way you flip that. That's great. To bounce off what Shanda just described, I think, I don't know if I would cite it as a mission of Same as Sister, but we're really interested in a hybridity in our work, be that through disciplines, but then more specifically using different dance forms that have maybe been termed in a more white canonical sense in the dance world as being, in quotations, low art or vernacular art. So we're, again, using this word of reclamation, we're really interested in how we bring those dance forms to a more sort of traditional proscenium stage experience and hold those dance forms with the same weight and regard as we do the more Eurocentric forms of classical dance, even contemporary, modern, postmodern dance. And because we kind of exist in both worlds, how we can bring them together in a unique way. And I feel it starts to create a whole new dance vocabulary that we've slowly been developing over the duration of our collaboration. I have a more poetic or whimsical response to it. I feel like the Black body is so resilient. And personally, I feel like it's something that I have on my shoulders from my ancestors and their hardships, but that's built into our bodies to remain strong through movement, through all the various types of movement that we've been put through and taking ownership over it. And then even in my own experiences, how my body has carried me through so many different things and how it's the one constant that has remained strong and adaptable, whether through performance or my daily life. Hillary, what you offer in terms of bridging different forms of dance together is that when I think about ontological plasticity in the way that I would like to think about it, it's without hierarchy. It's being several things at once without one being higher or lower. That's pretty much what I heard from you, Hillary, when you're saying you're integrating these different forms of art that have been hierarchized, like one is low and one is high. How can we be many things at once without stratifying them? Do many things at once without stratifying them? I think all of your work, it seems to attempt to achieve that through interdisciplinary thinking and multimedia. And you're all great weavers and integrators. There's gestalt happening. I agree. I also think, of course, for us, a goal in performance is for it to read to the audience. We know they're not going to be able to pick up on every little niche or detail that we're coming to it with or that our collaborators are bringing to the table, but that they get the general gist or the essence of what we're trying to say. And I guess this is the joy and the pain of the process of being a creator and an interdisciplinary thinker is you're like, I just want them to know it all. They should know that there's this little hidden idea and that it came from this text, but then this text linked to this image. And I just have to come with terms with it will be there. You may not be saying it, but it's present. And that's actually to circle back to the dance space platform. When I first got introduced to Reggie Wilson through a residency at ACA and we had mentorship sessions with him, that was something that he said to me because he could see that maybe early anxiety of trying to do all these things and say all these things at the same time. And he's like, 
it's all there and it will come out in the ways that it needs to come out. And that always has stayed with me. I think that's a really beautiful thing. All the thinking, all the research, all the rehearsals, the conversations, the interactions on the subway, they're going to come out in the final thing. I wish I could just have that right there recorded every time I'm preparing for a presentation and I'm researching and writing and crazy, anxious. Just call me. I'm also wondering if that is, in fact, part of the Black female experience. And I'm speaking not as a Black person, certainly, but I wonder about this anxiety of also having all of your T's crossed and I's dotted to ensure that there is something that is beyond reproach that you put out in the world and how much of the pressure, Brianna, you were talking about the resilience and also the ancestors sitting on your shoulders, but I'm wondering also about the responsibility that you feel to carry it forward. I feel with Hillary and I, we always want to get our message across. We want to be essentially in this space, we want to be heard. We want the piece to resonate with the audience. And I remember one time we had an audience member through a talk back and he had said that the work to him was so cryptic, but he was giving it as a compliment. He was like, it was so cryptic. It's like a puzzle that I feel like I need to now solve in my head. And he's like, I'll spend the next rest of the year trying to figure out what you were saying, because I think I know what you were saying, but then you did something here and I'm not sure, but it's having me think. And I really like that description because it's there, we're giving it to them, but we're also making them think how it translates to them. And it's something that's lasting, which I really would like to achieve with our work, that we obviously have made you think you've experienced something and then you continue to think on it. And we've talked about before, not spoon-feeding the audience. I think that person breathed. I remember that audience member as well. And I took it very much as a compliment. He actually said, your work is like a combination of a Kanye West video and a Yodorovsky <laughs> film. <laughs> That's something that always stuck with me too, because I'm kind of like, you kind of landed on it actually. This like subconscious surrealist approach to cinema and then this like popular cultural lens and reframing of a lot of things that Kanye kind of brings to the table. So yeah. Cryptic is another way of making it too. I wanted to respond to Ali's question too. I think that's always a voice that I have to quiet. Am I going to be heard? And going back to what Brianna said, similarly, I want my message to be heard. I want to communicate it. There's the fear that it won't be. If I don't work really hard to get it right, it's not going to be heard because there's an expectation that I don't have anything of import historically to say as a Black woman anyways. So that voice is there. I totally second what Shanda and Bree spoke to about that. I think it's something that I'm going to always struggle with as an artist and as a performer and as a human navigating the world. Not to give away my age, but as I approach middle age, (laughs) (laughs) I've gained some more confidence in finding that grounding in my voice and just reminding myself that this is something, it feels important to me and in my circle of collaborators. So this is something that needs to be shared. And hopefully just in that sharing, it will call up these other conversations and impacts that can sort of like a spider web just keep expanding. Well, that's certainly our hope with Couched. Absolutely. 
I had this like funny imagining when you were saying if I could only have a recording of that. I'm like, but you do. It's <laughs> <laughs> so true. Thank you all so mm-hmm. much. Thank you. Deep Thank appreciation you. for you being here. Thank you all, really. I'm really, really grateful for all of your contributions. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So lovely to meet you all too, Hillary, Brianna, and you too, (laughs) Robbie. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Couch with Drs. Almas, Ali Merchant, Billy Pivnik, and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association.